Time for Spotlight on KRWC. We're happy to have in studio with us one of our state representatives from the uh, area. State Representative Marion O'Neill visits with us on this Friday on Spotlight. And I uh, haven't chatted with her for a while, so it's always uh, nice to talk with you. And I think this might be the first time you've been out in person for a while. So welcome. Nice to have you back. It's great to be here in person. Thank you for having me in studio. We were chatting uh, off the air about the uh, the wild roller coaster we've been on here for a uh, year and a half or so and uh, uh, kind of flaring up a little bit again right now but uh, hopefully we're past the worst of it anyway I hope anyway I certainly hope so I don't think anybody wants to go back to all the mandates with mask mandates and business shutdowns and all of that it was incredibly detrimental especially to out here in Wright County I heard from a lot of our business owners that were either on the verge of going bankrupt or actually did yeah well, and on that topic, and it's kind of interesting, I was just reading uh, in the Star Tribune today comments, and I'm paraphrasing here, but the governor was saying something to the effect of that we have to learn to live safely with the uh, the situation, which I think is what a lot of people uh, in your party were calling for uh, for a long time already. Yeah, I have a lot of trust in people, and I, I know that especially when you're drinking and things like we talked about the bars and how the more people drank, the less responsible they were. And that happens in all kinds of behavior when you're talking about alcohol. But by and large, I think people are responsible and we've learned to social distance. We've learned to be cautious when we need to be cautious, wear masks when we need to wear masks. And a lot of people have gotten the vaccine, you know, and so that helps. It doesn't knock it out completely, as we know with the Delta variant, but it certainly helps. Yeah. Well, and on that topic, I guess, you know, the, um, the advice is, is ever-changing. And it's, it's one that, you know, I guess to a large extent, um, really as far as the, uh, how to deal with it uh, is concerned, uh, is, you know, a really kind of a, a nonpartisan issue as far as, you know, what's, what's happening with it. And uh, so learning how to deal with it and live with it and, and, uh, and hopefully be healthy with it is, is going to be with us a long time. I certainly think so. I think it's taught us a little bit more just about epidemiology and disease progression and things like that. You know, colds and flus have always been here. Viruses have always been here. And the waves come through and then they just uh, go down and we just have to learn how to be a little bit more healthy. I, and I think that's the, a key, too, is I think people have started to focus really on how can I take care of my own personal health? Maybe I'm drinking less sugar sodas or I'm trying to eat more green vegetables and being out in the sunshine, getting vitamin D, taking zinc, you know, just trying to change their health, getting away from processed foods. I personally eat as much organic food as I possibly can. I have a garden that I eat from every single day um, with high nutrition foods. So I'm doing everything I can. I'm taking my vitamins, getting my exercise, trying to eat really healthy. And I think people are starting to adopt that. Mm-hmm. All good steps, all just general general health items that uh, people have preached for for a long time. So we've got a lot of topics that we want to touch on today. I want to maybe first tiptoe back to the uh, legislative session and the special session because I don't think that we've had really a too much of an opportunity to uh, chat since that time. So if we can get a, a thumbnail capsule of, of what happened, what didn't happen, what maybe should have happened, uh, and maybe in a quicker time, I'll let you reflect on some of that. 
Yeah, boy, it was a lot. Um, so in the previous biennium, I had served on seven committees. And so I really had my fingers in a lot of different things with COVID and the you know, having to do Zoom meetings and not being in person, our staff's not in person. We barely got to see our staff. It was very, very, very occasionally when we saw our st- staff face to face. So this last biennium, I've only been assigned to four committees, which for me seemed like a very small number. But the four I was on was uh, higher education. So I was the lead for higher education. So I delved deep into that policy and that budget area. Then I was on Ways and Means. So that's the committee that hears all of the budget bills. So all of the 13 omnibus bills come through. Now I'm not an expert on all those bills, but I certainly got to hear um, the important parts, the highlights of all those bills coming through the house. Then I was on a little tiny committee that was supposed to be very uh, non-controversial and it turned out to be anything but, and that was legislative process reform. And so what we ended up doing was reviewing chapter 12. That is where the emergency powers have come from. And we spent seven to eight weeks, every single week, uh, sometimes twice a week, discussing how we could modify chapter 12. And I have to tell you, this is one of the shockers for me out of the entire last 18 months. So many of you here know that former Senator Jerry Ralph con- contracted COVID sometime in November. We don't know exactly where, but he contracted COVID and he passed away. I heard multiple, multiple, multiple times from Democrats in the House in that committee that we could not reform Chapter 12 so that there was equal power between the House and the Senate. In other words, when the governor issues his peacetime emergency uh, powers and, um, you know, it goes through the executive committee and they extend it past five days, then that comes to the legislature. So right now, the House and the Senate both have to vote to stop the emergency powers. And we were trying to make it so that the House and the Senate both have to approve the emergency powers. And this is what we were told repeatedly. Uh, We cannot trust the Senate now or ever because Jerry Ralph contracted COVID at a party that the the Republicans held um, and he died. So they were using this poor man's death as a reason why we couldn't transform and reform Chapter 12, which is why the governor had his emergency powers as long as he did, because it had to be the House and the Senate both vote to end his powers. And unfortunately, in the House, it was an additional hurdle that the Senate did not have because of our rules. We had to vote to suspend the rules, which is a supermajority, not just a simple majority like it says in Chapter 12. And so the majority used that as a weapon against us so that we, couldn't, we never could get to a supermajority to suspend the rules to take up the vote to either vote up or down the resolution. So it was really, really frustrating. It was some of the most egregious abuse of power I think I've ever seen in my nine years at the legislature. And, you know, it was it was a daily topic of conversation. It seemed like for, you know, a number of weeks, certainly months, really. It was a topic. So, of course, every single month when we were not in session, the governor had to call us into special session in order to be allowed to take a vote. But the majority in the House used the, the House rule to say, no, you have to get a supermajority vote to suspend the rules to take up the resolution to take the majority vote in order to end his emergency powers. And 
you know, we voted on either the suspension of the rules or the emergency powers 21 times until we were finally successful. Um, it was, it wasn't really until I believe that the governor told the speaker of the house, yes, you can remove my power now, which really is not a balance of power at all. That's an abuse of power. State Representative Marion O'Neill, our guest on today's spotlight here on KRWC. We're just kind of going over things that uh, happened, well, I guess late 2020 and early 2021 during the uh, session, eventually the special session, special sessions, I guess. Um, other things that, that happened uh, that, that we should review. Sure. So during our regular session, we could not come to agreement between the House and the Senate to pass any budget bills to the governor. So nothing passed. It took the special session and intense negotiations in order for those 13 budget bills to actually pass and, and go to the governor. And what ended up happening was anything that was even slightly controversial was jettisoned. So it was truly a bipartisan bill by the time it was done. It had to have full agreement with the House and the Senate um, in order to pass and go to the governor. So the end result, because we have divided government, because we have a House run by the Democrats and a Senate run by the Republicans, is a very um, narrowly focused set of bills that fund government and do a few other quick things that had been either worked on in large working groups and they come to consensus. I worked on several of those. Um, and then just small increases to some spending just to help with some um, COVID things. And then also, uh, so there was no tax increases. There were very, very, very small little things, uh, some fee increases for small things that hadn't been raised in a long time. But by and large, um, it was it was a pretty non-controversial set of bills. Mm -hmm. Is that what it's getting to be where, um, you know, it almost, uh, as you say, kind of has to be that way in order to get through? Because, I mean, it's nothing unusual for, um, you know, proposals and some portions of some bills to be, you know, liked by one side, not liked by another side. That's not unusual, but it just seems like uh, everything in the last, maybe you'd agree or disagree, I don't know, maybe the last um, five, six sessions just has been getting amped up every time. Is it? Is that a fair statement? So what I've seen happen is there were about 25 new members of the House that came in on the Democrat side that um, many of them were members of their posse caucus. So they're people of color and indigenous uh, caucus. And they came in with very aggressive agendas. Um, they wanted very extreme police reform. They wanted, oh, for example, like the Rondo neighborhood down in St. Paul, where I-94 split the Rondo neighborhood in half and the interstate went uh, and cut their community in half. And so um, the posse caucus of the house and a few other members wanted to restore the Rondo neighborhood. And so one of the things that did pass was a small amount of funding, $6.5 million, to do a feasibility study to see if it's even possible to put a five-mile-long bridge, it's called a land bridge, over I-94. So they came in with all of these very big, grandiose ideas. Now think about Southwest, Southwest Light Rail, which was recently in the news. We are exceeding $2 billion in that huge infrastructure project. 
So the estimation of this five-mile-long bridge over I-94, then then you build on top of. So you're going to build apartments and, and parks and all these things on top of I-94. Uh, I don't even know if it can be done, but the estimation is a half a billion dollars. And one would guess that that's going to be quite a bit more than that. So these are really big, big ideas that they've come with. And... Um, and some of them were really good ideas, and we did pass some really great things about getting more people of color to be teachers in the classroom so that students can identify with somebody from their own race, their own culture. And those are things that I supported. But it, um, there certainly were a lot of ideas from a lot of new freshmen. Yeah. Um, what is left? What was left on the table that just couldn't be agreed to um, and just is left up in the air. W- where are we at here as far as, I mean, it'll be a while now before um, the next session, but uh, where are we at? What what kinds of things are, do we need to look forward to? So the biggest thing I think that was discussed but didn't get very far is the bonding bill. And typically we don't do a bonding bill or we do a very small bonding bill in the budget year. So it's very normal to either do none or small, but we didn't do anything, so we did none. Um, we'll be looking at that bonding bill coming up. And again, uh, one party wants to do, to basically max out the credit card and do as much as you possibly can bond for, where the Republicans are saying maybe we should take this with a little bit more conservative approach and do a smaller bill and focusing on roads and bridges and infrastructure that we already own to make sure that, you know, like heaper things. So things like that. So, uh but the bonding bill gets just chocked full of all kinds of small projects from members in their member districts, and and it adds up quickly. So it, I'm sure that there are over $4 billion of requests, just like there always is, and every year it's continuing to grow. So that's one big thing that we'll have to talk about when we come back. Yeah. Will it lead to uh, uh, more stalemate? That's what people always are, are kind of concerned about is that, you know, There'll be back and forth and back and forth on it until, uh, you know, like we've seen, uh, you end up with something that's either so watered down that, um, you know, no major accomplishments or, or nothing at all comes forward. I would anticipate that there will be a bonding bill this next uh, session. Um, it's going to be a compromise. It always is. Mm-hmm. And you've got the Senate has a one vote majority with the Republicans and the house has got a four vote majority. So they are very slim margins. And when you're talking about a bonding bill, it originates in the house and it has to be passed by um, a super majority. So you need, you need the minority in order to pass a bonding bill. So it kind of has baked into it. There has to be compromise and cooperation. I want to let you, we're, quickly running out of time already and we just started but I want to let you get to um, a couple of points that you definitely want to touch on one that you're going to be expanding on today uh, in a Twin Cities media outlet but um, talk about um, the accomplishments uh, in those areas and I'll just let you set it up. Yes so I've been working on this for three years and this is something that uh, was so egregious and it dealing with sexual assault in Minnesota. So we had just terrible law in Minnesota, and I don't know if it's better or worse than anywhere else in the country, but for example, 
um, I was notified of a 13-year-old girl who had been brought here from Wisconsin. She was groomed on Facebook. A gentleman picked her up who was in his early 20s. He lied about how old he was, picked her up, brought her to Minnesota, picked up another man along the way, held her captive, gave her drugs and alcohol, and raped her repeatedly um, over the course of several hours. So there was a, an intense um, investigation, and uh, the now Commissioner Schnell was the police chief at the time. His investigators did a fantastic job. They, have, they had all the evidence one could ever ask for in a case like that. And all of that went to the county commissioner, John Choi, who reviewed the case on four occasions, um, two at my behest, one at the behest of, of Commissioner Schnell, actually, and one by the parent. And, um, and he rejected the ability. He, he said, no, I'm not going to prosecute this. And I could not understand why. And neither could uh, Paul Schnell. So I brought him into my office. And out of that birthed what's I called Hannah's Law, which was some changes to the sexual assault laws. Now, it didn't pass the year that I did it, but what it, came, what it turned into was a working group to rewrite the entire chapter of criminal sexual conduct. So we did that. We, I attended all these working group meetings. We had all of the experts you can possibly ask for um, that came to the table. We rewrote the whole chapter, made it much more user-friendly and good for victims, and I'm proud to say that that is now law, and it will be in effect on September 15th. And so it protects children from rape and sex trafficking. It uh, holds men and women that commit rape at, uh, more accountable, and it's easier to prosecute. The language has been cleaned up. And the, the most important part is the mentally incapacitated that the Minnesota Supreme Court basically said you have to be drugged against your will and without your knowledge in order for you to use this definition of mentally incapacitated. And so we have since changed that so that even if you are intoxicated with some substance and you aren't able to consent, that is still rape because um, basically the Supreme Court said, no, it has to be given against your uh, knowledge. And you had... um a wide range of of support. I mean, this is one of those rare cases where where everybody was pretty much all in on this. Everybody was all in. So, because the the Democrats control the House, my colleague who is a Democrat chief authored the bill, Kelly Moeller, and she is uh, in the Hennepin County Court System as a prosecutor. She worked in the appellate court and such. And so uh, she and I worked through all of the language multiple times. I can't tell you how many times I've read that bill just to make sure that we have captured everything, that we've changed all the different references, particularly uh, regarding children. And so instead of it being under 13, now it's under 14. So that captures many more of these cases, like the Hannah case. Mm -hmm. So there isn't a question about whether or not uh, she had the ability to consent. Uh, She obviously did not. And so it, it just adds so much more protections for children. But yes, we worked across the aisle. It was unanimously supported in the House. It had great bipartisan support in the Senate. It was one of these pieces of legislation that was championed by, you know, any of the advocates that were in the legislature, regardless of party. Is this going to take on a national or uh, are we going to see this as a, a model for, for other states to look at and say, you know, we should take a look at this? I believe so. I have done um, legislation in the past that have become national models. It's always my goal that I write something 
and craft something that is worthy that other states can pick it up. And so I believe so. And that's actually, it's interesting because Kelly Muller and I have those conversations about doing the national circuit. So legislators do different, they go different places and have conferences. And so we were talking about doing the national circuit with it. Well, congratulations on, uh, on some fine, fine work there. We have to talk before you uh, leave. Obviously, the uh, Republican Party's been in some turmoil lately. It's no secret. It's been uh, all over the news. Uh, I'll let you comment on that. And what's next for the party? Uh, you have to choose a new chair, obviously, and maybe walk us through those uh, scenarios. Right. So uh, Jennifer Carnahan did resign. She was meeting with the executive board. So that's 15 members that are basically the highest ranking people, you know, the the board of the Republican Party. Um, What's a little disturbing to me is that she voted on her own exit package. So her own um, compensation to leave. And they agreed to three months compensation. She was the deciding vote. There was a tie um, to vote seven yes, seven no, and she was the deciding vote for her own compensation package, which is incredibly problematic and probably illegal. So we'll be dealing with that. I'm actually a state central delegate, so I'm one of about 350 state central delegates, and we'll be meeting on Monday at, at kind of a, an emergency convention to discuss all the different aspects. But my concern, especially like I just told you, I really have been one of the strongest advocates for children and victims of violence and victims of sexual violence. And for me, it was just egregious that she brought um, an accused child sex trafficker into the very heart and soul of the Republican Party. He wasn't just one of 10,000 donors, as she has characterized it. He was at her bachelorette party. He was at her small intimate wedding. He went out socially with her on multiple occasions. He was inside of decision-making that happened within the Republican Party. Um, And... um, I know that he was there when there were young women present that were interns of the Republican Party. And so, and she, you know, asked them to go over there and talk to him and things like that. So it's incredibly problematic to have somebody with that lack of character give so much money, become a major donor and be so um, instrumental into the party. And we need to rebuild, quite frankly. We need a different chair and we need to rebuild. What's the process? Do people... um Excuse me, a little frog. Uh, do people apply for consideration to be party chair now? What's the what's the steps there? Mm-hmm. So um, different people have already announced that they would be seeking the that position, and so they'll be voted in. It, we have forty five days to do that from the moment that she resigned, and so that um, activity will be that convention will be coming up fairly soon. There are a few people that have already put their names forward that they would like to run for state party chair, but it's an elected position. We the state central delegates elect that person. And is it a, um, does the position carry a term or is it until further notice? Or I, I guess, I, not to sound ignorant on it, I'm just not sure how the structure is. Yeah, it is a term. And I believe, I'm trying to remember if the state party chair is two years or four. Um, I'm not sure on that myself, but okay. I most likely, typically what happens is the new chair would fill, fulfill the term of the previous chair, and then they'd have to get reelected. All right. So obviously, um, lots to come on that, and and uh, some of that will be in the very near future here too. So, I know you're uh, on your way to uh, some more 
media appointments here today. So we uh, thank you for taking time to visit. And uh, anything big coming up here as far as uh, meetings or constituent uh, happenings that are that are uh, just around the corner? Well, I always have lots of constituent things that happen. Um, just yesterday, I met with uh, Commissioner John Harrington of DPS and then his top people at DVS and then our top commissioners here in Wright County. And we were discussing about um, behind the wheel driver's tests, which of course has been just a thorn in our side here in Wright County. We've People have had to go as far as Bemidji or even beyond to do their behind the wheel testing. And so I'm glad to let you know, all the listeners, that that is soon to be resolved in the new government center that will be opening fairly soon, um, which is right by the law enforcement center and the uh, Wright County Jail. That will be opening fairly soon, and this uh, DVS will have a co-location there. So we just need some people to be willing to um, to work. And so we need employees. That's the next huge hurdle is we need people that are willing to get trained and to work at DVS here in Wright County. And um, we're hoping that in January it'll be up and operational. Yeah, I know that'll come as a, a big, big relief, especially to uh, a lot of parents and or guardians that have uh, 16-year-olds that are looking to get licenses or or anybody of any age that, uh, that wants to do that. So that's been a... It's been a big sore spot for a long time. It really has. And the pandemic just made it so much worse. Yeah, I mean, even back when my son was taking his behind the wheel, um, he's now 27. So back when he was 17, he took the behind the wheel. 10 years ago, we went to Bemidji to do the behind the wheel because we knew that it was such a long wait. And um, it was pretty difficult down here in the metro. Yeah. Very good. We'll let you go and uh, we'll we'll try to... Uh, have you in more frequently or, or maybe by phone once in a while, too. Uh, State Representative Marion O'Neill of Maple Lake, our guest on today's Spotlight. Thank you for all your work, and uh, thanks for visiting with us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. All right. That's our Spotlight for you for today on KRWC.